What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining me today is Ralph De La Rosa, who is the author of the number one best-selling The Monkey is the Messenger, Meditation and What Your Busy Mind is Trying to Tell You. His work has been featured in the New York Post, CNN, GQ, Self, Women's Health, and many other publications and podcasts. He was named amongst Sonima's next generation of meditation teachers. Ralph is a state-licensed therapist in private practice in New York City and offers virtual life coaching sessions to clients all over the world. He specializes in trauma, anxiety, depression, and intimacy issues. He is a summa cum laude graduate of Fordham University's Graduate School of Social Services, trained in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy and trauma systems therapy as a social worker in the foster care and community mental health systems. Today, his work integrates internal family systems therapy, somatic psychology, and mindfulness-based approaches. Ralph began practicing meditation in 1996 and has taught meditation since 2008. He is a mentor to meditation teacher trainees at Mindful and a regular teacher at venues such as Spirit Rock, which I was at a few years ago. Beautiful. And we'll have to talk about that. Yeah. Omega Institute, Kripaloo. Ralph himself is a depression, PTSD, and addiction survivor. His work is inspired by the tremendous transformation he has experienced through meditation, yoga, and therapy. You can listen to or read his story on the Embodied Philosophy podcast episode inside one teacher's journey from darkness to light and we'll make that available on the show notes ralph is also a musician and storyteller and he currently lives in brooklyn with his two cats emma goldman and henry lee ralph welcome to the show <laughs> thank you so much that was a mouthful right <laughs> yeah i think i put, nailed that one so amazing bio so interested across the board but take us back in time to your upbringing where you're from and where this all started for you sure so i grew up in a small desert town in the mojave desert actually but um so in southern california but a place that is is right on the border of mexico close to a town called mexicali a really really big city in mexico um and california but culturally really more like Arizona in terms of conservatism and, and uh, methamphetamines mm. and uh, fun, fun variables like that. And so, um, yeah, I didn't fare too well in that environment. And I grew up with, like so many people do, with a pretty extreme sense of otherness and not fitting in and not belonging. Right. And, um, you know, some... Some adverse experiences came my way pretty early in life. My dad uh, left my family. Uh, we just came home and his things were gone. Um, that actually happened twice. Um, you know, lots of bullying in school, um, mm. a few physical assaults that occurred in high school that led me to drop out of high school, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, I was afraid to go outside for two years um, because that, that was the PTSD talking. Yeah. Uh, the hypervigilance and the avoidance was 
was so extreme that I had to drop out of school. And um, yeah, so it just kind of went from there. I, I had depression and, and trauma in the mix and also a real hunger to figure it out, a real sense of, you know, from a very early age, um, struggling with a lot of suicidal ideation, mm -hmm. but also having this keen sense of this can't be it. This can't be how it is. This can't be what this world is. This, there's got to be more to the story than this. Right. And that thirst really served me well in the end. I mean, things yeah. got worse in adult life early on um, in terms of uh, developing some addictions to alcohol, to cocaine, to eventually heroin. Mm. Um, and then also a very interesting kind of period where I used spirituality almost like a drug as an escape route, a way to just kind of go around all of those problems. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. just so, you know, you can use mantra and devotional practices and breath work and all of these things just like a drug to get high right. and to forget for a while. Right. But just like with substance use, you know, you come back and you're met with the same old problems again mm. if you don't learn how to really just walk the earth and, and be with yourself and meet your own mind without mm. trying to fix and custom tailor uh, your experience. And so that's what had to happen to me eventually. Right. It was just like learning how to sit with myself. Okay. Like really, really learning how to sit with myself, body, breath, and mind. Very straightforward, simple uh, meditation practice, also known as mindfulness of breathing, sometimes Vipassana or sometimes shamatha meditation. Um, that plus a whole lot of psychotherapy. Uh, residential substance abuse treatment at one point for six months, um, not in like a nice uh, place. It was actually uh, pris a uh, prison early release program also that let me in um, because I had nowhere else to go at that point. And that was actually my starting point, was being at that level of the depths, that low down that, you know, uh, guys were being unshackled on the premises, and then they were my roommate. You wow. Know? Um, and then I'm there, you know, doing this weird meditation stuff that nobody understood. Mm -hmm. But I had an amazing therapist, and I had uh, exposure. We did yoga in the program. And actually, I'll just say very briefly, I, I've never talked about this publicly, but uh, the yoga classes that I took in rehab were such an inspiration to me because again, I was in there with real killers, real people who had, I mean, I thought I had trauma. You know, I was like a kindergartner, like trying to hang out with, you know, seniors in high school basically with regards to how much uh, uh, trouble we had all survived from. And, um, but I saw, you know, these men and women uh, uh, doing yoga, these like kind of hardened people trying out yoga and breathing practices and what have you because they too were at this kind of low point mm. where they were just open to trying just about anything that would that would help them it was like kind of like why not yeah i found that so inspiring that even somebody with that kind of history could you know that there are windows in people's lives when you know especially when we're at the bottom where we're ready to let go of you know, my way isn't working. Yeah. We're ready, or actually re ra rather ready to step into an, an acknowledgement that my way isn't working and let go of 
this notion that I've got it all figured out and, and you know, I know what's best and ready to humble oneself and, and open to different ideas and different processes and methodologies and, and, and what have you. And seeing people at that bottom, you know, with that sort of openness, you know, as well as, as my own uh, uh, journey really, really inspired me. That's powerful. And I remember kind of in my own journey going through a lot of trauma, abuse, addiction, in my past and okay. upbringing, okay. and then, um, but thinking I had it all figured out anyway. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And then on the same day, my girlfriend's throwing all my stuff in the hallway of the apartment, kicking me out of our apartment. Okay. Um, my job is about to fire me. Mm -hmm. um, and my family is like, we want to hold like an emotional intervention with you. You're being awful. <laughs> and I was like, what? But that forced me. That was an acute moment in my life about five years ago when I said, I need therapy. I need some kind of newness. Yeah. And it sounds like these people were finding that, which inspired you. And you also mentioned you had this kind of awareness that there was more to life. Yeah. Did you have an awakening moment or were, as you were kind of just in your upbringing and everything kind of knew there was going to be some kind of self-help practice that just hadn't been implemented yet? Yeah. I, I knew that there was something and I didn't know what. And I mean, I can remember a moment going out to score heroin and it was a moment when I was finally like really acknowledging like this is I'm I'm really in the deep end of the pool here, you know, and uh, had the thought that either this is going to kill me or this is going to back me into a corner so hard that I'm actually going to have to get serious about life and take a look at some things. And um, I think the real pivot point was the very first time I sat with a Buddhist community and practiced mindfulness-based meditation mm. and no mantras and no deities and no, you know, transcendent breath work or, or, you know, just sitting there, body, breath, and mind stranded with myself and just noticing how intolerable that was. That was the real turning point and that, that turned a light bulb on like, oh, this is what's going on. I can't even be with myself. I can't even stand my own company. Well, how do I expect life to work? <laughs> how do I expect to feel good? How do I expect to be happy? You know, if I can't even stand being with myself. So that was that was the kind of pivot pivotal moment for me. Wow. Yeah. I want to talk about that because that's something that for sure that I can resonate with in my past. So mm -hmm. I was working on Wall Street for many years, okay. and that all happened. And as I started to get my own help and go on my own journey probably like you to some degree, I was like, well, this is my calling in life to teach this. Mm -hmm. So I now do that. But I remember on Wall Street and to some degree earlier in this business, um, staying hooked into work as the new addiction. Yep. As you mentioned, the spirituality became the new addiction and just anything to be busy to avoid the feeling or the sitting or the, the here-ness or is-ness of life and yourself. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts for the listeners who may, first of all, how can we wake them up a little bit um, mm -hmm. to tie it into our previous conversation about thinking about your awakening and mine? How can yeah. we wake people up who may think everything's fine, but it might not be? And also, how do we get them to be a little more still? Like, I remember some of my friends before I got into the more spiritual communities, we would you know, go get brunch and drink a lot of alcohol and then watch the first football game and bet money on it and then watch the second football game. And not to knock on them, it was me too. Just an inability to sit still and be. There was always some kind of external distraction, which then had to become more and more extreme. Right, right, yeah. 
And there's so many. We have infinite distractions, right? Yeah. Like I was going through all of this before smartphones. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, if I had, you know, this, this nice iPhone that I have in front of me right now, back then, who knows? Oh, yeah. <laughs> who knows? But um, really excellent question. How do we hit those pivot points for ourselves, you know, even if we're not in a state of crisis, mm. even if you, you don't have a heroin addiction or an emotional intervention coming from your family <laughs> or, or um, whatever. And it's still universal that we all deal with stuckness of some sort in our lives. If we, there's areas of our lives always where there is confusion, there's things not flowing, um, there's anxiety, there's a sense of claustrophobia or being hemmed in. And there's always, for everyone, repetitive patterns that show up in life. And I mean repetitive patterns in like circular thinking, repetitive patterns of I'm having the same kind of emotions over and over again. We all have our predilection towards what, depression, anxiety, etc. Uh, anger is a big one that, that gets stuck on repeat for people. Yeah. There's repetitive patterns in terms of our relationships and our, especially the intimate and familial ones, you know, yeah. that no matter who I'm with, it always ends up that I don't have enough space or that I need more and I don't feel like I'm getting enough or, or whatever. Um, and these repetitive patterns in our lives that are, that are uh, irritating at best and you know, re-traumatizing at worst, I think are designed by evolution, well, design might not be the right word, but we've evolved to have these patterns in our lives because those are meant to wake us up. Because it's only when we're frustrated and it's only when we're met with the same crappy situation for the thousandth time, no matter how many uh, Reiki circles we've been to or how many amazing <laughs> self-help books we've read or how many you know therapists we've tried or, or, or green juices we've drank or whatever. <laughs> Right? Like when we're met with that situation the thousandth time and we're so frustrated by it, that's when we start asking those real questions like, what is really going on here? What, what, what is my life for? You know, why am I having these same emotions over and over again? Why is it that no matter which partner I'm with, they end up resembling the last one I was with, you know, et cetera? I really think that um, crisis plays a very adaptive or can can play a very adaptive role in, in our lives yeah. um, if we know how to meet it the right way and if we have the resources to do so, which is a really big bullet point, actually. Yeah, that's a huge one. Yeah. Um, I want to definitely talk about relationships because okay. <laughs> I'm going through that now. I actually met you at uh, a New Year's event, right? Um, and I was there with my girlfriend, uh -huh. and I'm very intrigued by learning more about romantic relationships, so let's make that question too but the first one i just want to touch on now yeah. is um i work with people who either have addiction or had and or have a family member who's going through addiction um there are other listeners out there who might have compulsive behavior for mm -hmm. example social media pornography mm -hmm. alcohol um mm -hmm. when you you have it sounds like you went through a really powerful recovery process yeah. um and a lot of people to your point about not having the right resources for addiction recovery where would you recommend someone starts on that process? It really depends on um, really depends on the person and 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 what they're struggling with and what yeah. you know what sort of emotional realities are informing what they're struggling with. 
but therapy is never a bad start. <laughs> um, if you can be referred to a therapist by somebody that you trust, um, because my people are a very strange lot at times. <laughs> um, but one way or the other, we have to find a way to stop. And, you know, like 12-step programs are definitely problematic, but they're really wonderful in that they give somebody a place to go that's free and accessible and it's just like an emergency break. Yeah. It's a place where you can just stop. And at some point, you just have to stop and then be with what's coming up. Mm. That's because when we're gratifying the impulse all the time, we'll never see what's underneath the impulse. When we stop, and there's so many ways to pull that emergency break. And again, you know, community where there's accountability of some sort. It wasn't 12-step for me. It was actually... Uh, formal Buddhism and formal Buddhist uh, uh, Sangha community and, and having a place to drop in every week with people I knew and, and you know, and um, getting into going to school and what have you, things in my life that created an accountability and a reason mm. to stop and to stay stopped. Um, but then once one is stopped, then the real healing process begins. Yeah. You know, and that's what's not available at, at, at uh, 12-step meetings, unfortunately. Um, we get to see what what comes up. I feel like I'm going to go crazy if I don't do this thing. I feel like I'm going to fall apart. This is the only thing that's holding me together. I'm filled with rage. I feel like everything's hopeless. I feel uh, all this sadness or, or whatever. That's stuff that starts to come up when we don't gratify uh, a compulsion or an impulse is the real money. That's, that's where the healing is. And then learning how to go to those places mm. and to hold those experiences with care and, and compassion would be step two. I mean, first really learning how to breathe through all that triggeredness <laughs> um, is key. But a lot of the work that I do with people is around, if I can unpack this for a moment, yeah, is please. around how there's a multiplicity to our minds. And we, just like we have a, one body with you know, many different parts, you know, hands and eyes and ears and bones and muscle and blood, et cetera, and all of those parts serve a perfectly good purpose and service of the whole, it's just like that with our minds too, that we are made of many different parts. And all of those parts serve different functions in our lives. And um, the, the beauty of this understanding is it allows for, if there's a part of me that's really struggling in some way, whether it's a wounded uh, a kind of response or it's a defensive uh, sort of response, which I would classify all addictions and compulsions as defensive in nature. They're a way that we're trying to deal with our woundedness. They're a way that we're trying to make life safer and more manageable somehow. Mm. You know, but whatever part of you that, that you're met with that stru that's struggling, you know, you're not that part. You can learn how to put space between you and your emotional selves, plural. Uh, put space between you and what's going on, between you and your emotions, between you and whatever narrative is going on in your mind, and how to relax into maybe some curiosity or some compassion for that part of you. And already, you know, just with that sort of mental, it's a little bit of a mental Houdini to do it. And I think that's where meditation really comes in. But, you know, if you can imagine for a moment that 
I'm feeling lonely. And then I'm hating that loneliness. Mm. Right? That's two layers of suffering. Yeah. If I can stop and get curious about the loneliness, I've automatically eliminated one, level, one layer of suffering. Mm-hmm. And that curiosity opens the door to me working with the loneliness and eventually healing whatever the source of that loneliness is. And so, um, yeah, it's a much better <laughs> situation. <laughs> it saves a lot of time dealing with the anger and then a, a relapse and then the shame around that and then all the layers that stack. So, yeah, that's, that's spot on. And just to your point earlier, you talked about kind of the importance of community, um, at least community with 12-step, and then also it sounds like you had people and some kind of support when you were going through your recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, in New York City, for example, where we are recording this and where we both live, mm-hmm. um, even though there's so many millions of people, it can actually be very isolating. Oh, yeah. And I find that whether or not you're dealing with addiction, um, community can be very important. Not only community, but maybe the right type of community, people who practice these things that you teach and espouse, like meditation and Buddhist practices and mindfulness. Do you have any advice for listeners who either live in New York? We have a lot of New York-based listeners, but we have people all over the world, either in big cities or small, on how to get, especially even the big city people, like the millennials who are the working professionals, work all day and then go home to their little box. Yeah. You know, how they can get a little bit more plugged in. Yeah. I had, again, excellent question. And it's getting harder and harder because we're more and more absorbed in our devices and Mm -hmm. and yet somehow feeling more and more alone all the time. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, there's this really great mantra out there that actually comes from consumerist culture, just do it. (laughs) Maybe you've (laughs) heard that one. I've heard that one. Like we've just got to make time for it. And we've just got to make it a priority. You know, so many of these uh, things that we want, it's just a matter of making it a priority. So, you know, can I set aside one night a week for something that I love that, that other people I know are into? And whether that's rock climbing or meditation or something else, making music, something else, but just, you know, even one night a week set aside um, can go so far. I think, in, in somebody's life. I mean, there's three primary needs of the human uh, brain. Our neurology is centered around three basic motivations and uh, you know, safety, to feel good, and then the third is to belong, to feel a sense of connection. Mm. We cannot feel at ease if there's no sense of connection in our lives. And you know, being connected on our devices is like... Just, it's like eating a Snickers bar instead of having dinner. You know, it's like it'll yeah. do for a second, but, you know, there's, there's going to be a hangover associated <laughs> with that. And it's never going to satisfy you, really. You yeah. Know? So that's, I, I love that. And as a follow up question, I have um, people like you and me and the millions and millions of people out there who underwent some form of bullying or neglect from their parents or yeah. something have a subconscious belief that I don't deserve this good or this belonging and that's part mm-hmm. of the process is to work through that mm-hmm. but let's say one of the listeners finds a good community or finds a good friend but then kind of pushes that away because they don't feel like they deserve that or some shame comes up without them even realizing it how can we and this is i want to talk about this in the context of relationships yeah. as well oh please <laughs> how, how do we get people to like 
feel, you know, how good can I stand it? I deserve these healthy friendships, you know, to kind of feel attracted to and take in that goodness of others. Ooh. Yeah. Well, it's really simple, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's folks with trauma in their backgrounds, but I think it's actually of epidemic proportion. I mean, we all have trauma in our backgrounds to a greater or lesser degree. Right. But I think it's almost universal that folks are carrying around some level of I'm not good enough, uh, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, I'm a failure, et cetera, these sort of negative core beliefs um, that really come from all of the painful experiences and what they communicated uh, to us about our, our self-worth. And ag again, you know, when emotional activation comes up, that feels like a tragedy and it feels like life is unfair and it feels like there might be something wrong with me, but that's actually not true. We can only heal when we're emotionally activated. We can only heal when a wound is present. And so if that's coming up in a community sort of setting or with a partner or a friend, you know, what an opportunity it might be to work through that, to learn how to be with that part of yourself, how to talk compassionately to that part of yourself. And we're, we're always in communication with, I mean, really everything in our lives. That's what life is. It's a conversation that we're having uh, with the world around us and the world inside of us. And, um, you know, so the question is, what kind of conversation are we having? If some part of me is coming up and saying, you're not good enough, or you're going to blow this podcast interview, <laughs> for example, you know, how are, how are we talking back? Yeah. You know, can I, can I recognize that that part of me that is maybe a little bit freaked out and maybe wants to do the Irish goodbye and just kind of disappear out the, the side door? You know, that part of me is actually trying to keep me safe from the vulnerability of what it is to be with all of these, you know, maybe new people in my life. And so can I look to that part of me in the moment that I feel that impulse and again, kind of get a little space from it and say, thank you so much for taking care of me. And just remind that part, you know, maybe look around you. Hey, there's nobody who's threatening to me. There's no shortage of food or water in my life or air. Like I'm safe. Yeah, I'm safe. And just maybe breathe in. I, I have people do this in meditation all the time. Just notice the, the observable uh, signals of safety in your, in your environment and breathe into your body the acknowledgement that I'm safe right now. Because again, that's the most basic human need. And we're often convinced that we're not safe when we utterly are. Things can feel very edgy and like there's something off and you know, I'm not emotionally safe when... It's, it's just not true. Yeah. So, I mean, again, just, just to underline this point, when, when that sort of belief makes itself known, you know, it's an opportunity to work with that part of yourself. And then over time, with repetition and consistency, that conversation's going to get a lot less extreme and a lot more amiable to the, the circumstance. Yeah, I love that. I remember um, I've worked with a bunch of different coaches, and I had a amazing long-term therapist and, mm. and she was very helpful and, and one of the coaches I was just sitting in the biggest pile of like shame and all those emotions mm -hmm. uh, in the context of a relationship mm -hmm. um, and I was like oh she just brings all this out of me and I was just complaining and putting the blame on her mm -hmm. and uh, my coach just looks at me and goes good 
I'm, I'm glad you're like in a snarky, but like real way. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm good. Cause now we can actually deal with it. Yeah. Cause it was so far buried when I was isolating and not being willing to be risky and vulnerable and put myself out there into a relationship. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in this relationship knee deep in all these emotions. Mm-hmm. And he was like, great. Now we can handle it to your point of like, well, when it comes up, that's the opportunity in the window to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, you can't organize a junk drawer if you're unwilling to open it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 Good. So maybe we'll use that as a segue um, to relationships. Um, I'm curious what piqued your interest in that because it's something that I think you do professionally as part of your business. And uh, what along your journey personally allowed you to learn more and maybe were the key insights that you've learned about relationships along the way? Yeah, honestly, dysfunctional ones, yeah. you know, have really been my training ground. <laughs> yeah. um, again, just, 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 it's the stuff that we struggle with that has the most to teach us somehow. Just seems to be one of those facts of life that we can't get around. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, yeah, actually, my last long-term relationship, we were in couples therapy mo- most of the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, And uh, we got to a point where we looked at each other and said, you know, this really isn't working and I'm pretty sure I got to go. But what I'm learning and seeing about myself in these sessions and and the way that we're processing with each other now, like this is fascinating. And so I don't want to break up just yet. And we literally (laughs) prolonged the relationship just because we were both kind of growth junkies and really wanted the opportunity to look at our stuff. That is so funny because I was in a relationship last year. Um, and, and just a little bit more on my story is, you know, up my upbringing, intimacy modeled ex- as poorly as possible yeah. by my parents. And then again, my mother with my stepfather, they married, they divorced, they remarried. He took a piece of fine china, smashed it over his own head, gushing blood, cops, they arrest wow. my mom. Just he had every addiction you could imagine. Um, so I had, you know, in college and law school relationships on and off, but never anything real. Get to New York City. I had one real relationship, which thankfully was my awakening mm-hmm. into all of this work. But then during doing my inner work, very isolating um, mm-hmm. as the pain came up mm-hmm. and then just started dating last year. Um, and I had this relationship six weeks in. We were in couples counseling <laughs> 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 because oh man, for so many reasons. Um, and it was the same thing where I was like, how can I learn from this couples counselor so I can become a better coach? How can I um, develop my relationship skills yep. for the next one? Mm-hmm. And she, I think she, on some level she felt that way too. Uh, we did. We were both genuinely there to try and repair. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just funny because it's a very similar situation. So it sounds like you got into teaching relationships based on your own past experiences. Yeah, indeed. I mean, this is intimate relationships are where our traumas come out the most intensely. Yeah. They're, they're, they're just the arena that, that uh, it's, it's almost perfect the way that they trigger all of our deepest stuff. And um, there's this confusing aspect to relationships too. So we're we're entering in the rel- into the realm of what's called attachment theory, which is I love attachment theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The science of how our early caregiver bonds set us up for all these patterns in yes. emotional life. It's is one piece of theory that I mean, 
almost every therapist I know learns it and they're like, no, that's true. That's like yeah. all of this other stuff I can kind of entertain, but this seems like on the money, like, oh, yeah. like on point. And there's this confusing aspect to relationships too, where your what are called your attachment issues mm-hmm. don't actually manifest until there's a sense of permanency in the relationship. And they manifest to the degree that there's a sense of permanency as well. So, you know, when we're dating, that's actually just auditioning. (laughs) We're we're just, you know, we're just putting our best foot forward. And then, you know, when we finally negotiate the relationship and maybe make a commitment, things start to change a little bit. And then when we close the door on the apartment we just moved in together, (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, you know, then then that's when the real uh, magic happens and, and the real stuff comes out and it can be very disconcerting um it can feel like a bait and switch mm-hmm. you know like i you were this person six months ago and you're not that person now what what the fuck happened yeah um and so that's that's part of my uh impetus for for teaching on relationships and uh and exploring relationships with people is that it's this all important arena of our lives that tends to be the most confusing mm-hmm. and nobody teaches us about attachment theory yeah you know nobody teaches us that that um that you know when you <laughs> sign the lease that's when you know all of the wounds are really going to come out and nobody and there's so much shame too around couples counseling yeah you know but like listening to your story just now the thought crossed my mind you know like if i bought a car and not to com- i mean it's kind of a crappy comparison of Let's compar- hear it. <laughs> uh, but a relationship to a car but but you know if i bought a car and i love that car it's a great car it's you know i i really enjoy it i think it's you know going to serve me well but you know 6 weeks later it starts having all these problems i'm probably going to take that car to the shop yeah at least at first and then you know maybe if the problems don't abate then we can talk well, about trading it in you can see what's in. going on with the car and exactly. say oh i got to look at this thing for next time yeah yeah, yeah, so you learn from it. Yeah. Yeah, but if you really love the car and you feel like it's a, ultimately a good car, you're not going to just go and trade it back in. Yes. Or try to sell it. You know, you're going to work with it first. Yeah. And I say this to people all the time like, you take cars in to get a tune up. Why not have a maintenance session for your relationship? Yeah. Why wait till you're on the last leg? Yeah. You know, lo- almost looking for permission to break up from a therapist, you know, to go to therapy. Hmm. I like that because, and and my philosophy with both individual or couples counseling is we wait for the crisis to then go seek help. Yeah. Like I have a coach now Uh and I'm not perfect at all, Uh but I feel like I'm in one of the best places I've been in many years. And that's where I want to double down and just put money in the emotional bank and like do good work here. Yeah. And I always advise that to couples too. Like when you see a couple about to get married, especially if they're religious, their pastor or someone at the church will speak to them and basically do a couple session with them mm-hmm. just as a check-in. Yeah. You know, they're about to get married. They're, you know, not always, but you hopefully in a good place if they're about to get married. And I think that's really interesting and valuable. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was just going to then mention attachment theory quickly. So for the listeners, if you've been listening to me for a while, they've probably heard me recommend the book attached, uh. which I think is fantastic. Um, Amir Levine. Um, and, but, but you layered on a piece about attachment theory that I've never heard before that I think is amazing. Um, the degree of the activation of the attachment system can be correlated to the, uh, serious level of the relationship too, Mm -hmm. because attachment theory a lot is like, oh, I'm in danger. 
Mm-hmm. So the more you feel like you're tied in with this person yep. and then you get activated, the more danger you feel because you feel like you're trapped. Mm-hmm. And when, when, when you're anxious, for example, anyway, you feel like you're trapped to begin with. So that's like the double entrapment. So that's how did you figure that point out? Um, that actually came from another really important book on uh, attachment theory uh, uh, called Wired for Love by oh. Stan Tatkin. Yeah, he's great. Uh, he talks about, yeah, it's a, a degree of permanency. That, that really triggers us. Uh, Sue Johnson's book, uh, Hold Me Tight, as well. It's really another wonderful book on attachment theory. Okay. Yeah. Great. So let's take what we're talking about here and apply it to the listeners a little bit. Sure. Um, and I'll start with the people who are not in relationships first. Okay. So um, for those out there who are not yet in a relationship, what would you recommend that they do? Um, a lot of people say, go write your relationship vision and write out a 15,000 things that you have to have in your partner. And then other people say, no, you have to be open-minded because if you do that, you'll never find, no one's perfect. Yeah. Some people say, go work on yourself first. Other people say, you can grow by being in the relationship. Mm-hmm. And then there's all, I'm throwing a lot at you, but then there's also where do you meet people? So let's just start from the top. Yeah, just a couple of things, right? <laughs> just a few things. Just a couple of small How to get points. married in 90 days or less. Right. <laughs> and be spiritual and have it all. That podcast interview costs extra. <laughs> yeah, we'll make that round too. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, in terms of how to go about finding a relationship, you know, I posted this thing on Instagram actually just last night around how loneliness and wanting a partner are two different things. And I think that that's a really important discernment. Do you actually want partnership and all that it comes with? Or are you just feeling the edge of loneliness, the pressure around I'm single and I live in this world that tells me that a successful life, the only vision of a successful life entails life partnership, Mm -hmm. if not life partnership and kids? Yeah. You know, are we just responding to those kind of internal and external pressures? Or is there, you know, are we trying to get away from that? Yeah. Or are we going towards a partnership? I think that that's huge. And second of all, as, as the poet uh, Rupi Carr says, um, uh, you have to want to spend forever with yourself first. Ooh. You know? Wow. Like, yeah, the, and there's all of those uh, kind of, methodologies that are are disseminated in self-help which are wonderful don't get me wrong where it's like make a list of your ideal partner okay now s- take a look at that list and see if you measure up mm-hmm. and now you know what how you need to grow in order to deserve the person that you want mm-hmm. like that's great but i think it's also very very powerful to say can i be with myself right now without making a list warts and all you know, how do, how do I feel about myself right now? Because that's who I'm, that's, that's the place that my life is flowing from, my relationship to myself, how I feel about myself, how I treat myself, how I talk, talk about myself. That's the starting point for our entire lives. Where else could that starting point be? And so if we aren't in a healthy relationship with ourselves, how can we expect anybody else to enter into one? If we can't love ourselves just as we are now, how do we expect anybody else to love us as we are. So I yeah. think that that's um, a good foundation. And then what were your other questions? We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> that is just so spot on because mm. when we're talking about, you know, being in a relationship with someone else, 
you know, they're in a relationship with us, but we're also in a relationship with ourselves. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk out there about, you know, being in a good place first before getting into a relationship. And I agree with that. Um, sp- I'm looking specifically at how we can do that, how we can more than just like chant, you know, I'm awesome. I'm like, how do we actually get in there deep Yeah. and find uh, a, a level of self-love that's really authentic and fulfilling that maybe mm-hmm. heals the loneliness that mm-hmm. you mentioned yeah. So you can then be in that position to then go find an intimate relationship. Yeah. So I I work with a principle that I've been, or, or a process rather, that I've been referencing this whole time mm-hmm. um, that I'll make more explicit now called parts work. Okay. Um, and the particular style, there's lots of different styles of parts work, but the style that I like the best is comes from a Western modality of psychotherapy that's evidence-based and is quickly gaining traction because it's quite radical actually called internal family systems mm. and you know this idea of, of of we're made of different parts it's really you know there's an inner household there's an inner family and uh, can we offer love to every member of the family no matter what just like my external family where there's all these different personalities and agendas and and beliefs and what have you, but everybody wants the same thing, to feel heard, to feel seen, to feel respected, to feel loved. And so in terms of, you know, that deep healing that you're referencing, again, you know, can we go inside and be willing to feel the affliction, be willing to feel whatever's coming up for us? And can we have the generosity to appreciate in the true sense of the word appreciate our struggle and and how deep it is you know um to me that that central uh uh, set of bullet points is something i come back to over and over again it's really uh, we can really apply it to just about anything um, and there's there's lots of I could get much more specific too if you like, yeah. Because um, there's there's specific conversations that we can have with ourselves that kind of follow the psychology of our defensive parts and our wounded uh, parts, and kind of unlock things mm-hmm. such as I'll give you one example. So, and a, a listener could do this right along with us even. Yeah. So let's talk about a defensive part of us. You know, maybe the part of you that when you're in a relationship feels that sense of claustrophobia or on the other side of the spectrum feels that that neediness and that that leaning in and that anxiety about I've got to make sure they're really here with me. Right? If that comes up in the moment that that comes up, one can literally just stop Take a look inside at that part of you and maybe feel how it's showing up in the body. Like, is it in the heart? Is it in the belly? Is it tight? Is it heavy? Is it tingling? Is it knots? And then notice if that part of you is saying something like, I got to get out of here. This isn't safe. Or everyone I love leaves. Just start to notice what that part of you is up to. I'll just leave a little pause here. And then, can you get curious? 
about that part? Can you find a space inside? Maybe ask all the parts of you that are judging the situation or commenting or analyzing. Maybe just ask those other parts if they're willing to relax and give you some space so that you can be here with this freaked out part of you. And if you can find curiosity, what's going on here? A little space inside that feels kind of clear and open to being here with this part of you. You can actually ask this part of you, just maybe acknowledge to it like, hey, I see you're, you're really working very hard. so much energy to generate anxiety or resistance. And maybe just ask that part of you, does it like doing this job? Or does it feel like it has to? willing to bet that part feels like it has to. And you can also ask this part, if you didn't have to protect me in this way, what would you rather be doing? How would you rather express yourself? So that's just like the tip of an iceberg of a, of a really juicy process. <laughs> yes. Hey, man, so. I've I had a guy on my podcast um, who overdosed and thankfully lived. Mm-hmm. Um, he lost a leg in the process. I had a woman come on the show uh, who lost two sisters in the span of one year, mm-hmm. one to cancer, one to suicide. I had someone else come on and cry. So mm-hmm. I've had three of my guests cry on mm. this podcast, but I've never cried on my own podcast. So well done, Ralph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot there, though. Yeah. There's so much information there. Yeah. You know, not, I'm not going to uh, put you on the no, spot I, to offer I'll, to you. I'm going to say it right now what oh. happened. If Shit, that's awesome. cool. Let's do Hell it. Hell yeah. And uh, technically we have four more minutes in the studio, but until they drag me out of here, All right. I'm going to keep recording. <laughs> I'm down. Um so, uh, yeah, last night, um, yesterday was Valentine's Day. Right. Uh, we're recording this on uh, February 15th. Mm-hmm. And um, my girlfriend did something amazing for me. She, uh, while we were out, like, at a spa, um, she had one of her friends from her school program, her church program, uh, she lent this guy a key. He came in. And he left all these pictures of us, romantic couple shots of me and my girlfriend, all these chocolates, all these balloons. All It was just, he lit these tea lights. It was just, it was beautiful. Nice. And? And here's the fuck up. 
Um, when I got in, my first question was, who did this? And when I heard it was a man, just a little bit on my past was my mother was a serial cheater. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, I've never experienced that in my own relationships, either as a cheater or cheatee. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still work to be done around that. Mm-hmm. So my stories of uh, you gave another guy my keys, you know, all the stories came up, right? And But I was able to connect exactly with what was going on in that moment last night. Uh, I read a little passage from my journal from years from oh last year to my girlfriend, which was talking about uh, a time where I discovered my mother had cheating, and I was like, "Look, I, this these are the emotions that are here. This is why they're here. I'm not mad at you at all. This is beautiful, but this is what I'm going through." And she was very supportive, and we it was great. But I, as you relayed that practice, I did that. That's the scene I used. Mm-hmm. And there was just so much emotion around, well, especially like the feeling the need to be anxious and all the energy that it sucks up and all the sadness and also the freedom of maybe I could let go of that. Yeah. So yeah. Just so much emotion came up when you were doing that around yeah. that instance. Yeah. So that, that freaked out part of you, yeah. right? At face value, it's neurotic, it's problematic, we could classify it as toxic or reactive or even irrational. Yeah. And I think none of those things are true. I think that that part has logic and it's following a logic, you just described it. It's yeah. coming from real experiences, it's not made up, it's not irrational. And it's a part of you that was responding to real life painful things you've been through. Yeah. And was trying to suss out if there was a threat there and giving you the energy to do so and giving you the energy to fight or to run if you needed to, if you were actually in some sort of danger. Yeah. You know? Um, So I think that that, you know, that's a defensive response and defense means we're trying to keep ourselves safe. You know, defense mechanisms get a bad rap as, you know, again, neurotic, toxic, whatever. But it, the, the true definition is it's a part of you that's trying to keep you safe. How can we demonize part of you that's trying to keep you safe? Right? Yeah. And so, you know, if we went further with that, and stop me if you want to, because <laughs> I feel like this just got good. Yeah. <laughs> we could even ask that part, well, if you stopped doing that job, what do you think would start to happen? Yeah. Right? Like if our anxiety were to drop, or the anxious part of us was to stop being so anxious, what do you think would happen next? And when you ask that, like in a more brief fashion sure. earlier, mm-hmm. and this is where I got sad and, and yeah. like turned to beating myself up a little bit, but okay. also watched that was like the scene. I, didn't, I missed the whole thing. For for a detail that was pretty irrelevant, right? I missed the card that says I love you know. For the first time, I want to tell you I love you, and I missed the pictures that were cut in hearts, and I missed it all. Yeah, and I I think what could I have done? Receive love, mm-hmm. and then also give love, right? And that thought came from the anxious part of you or the the sad part of you. 
Um, not the anxious, because okay. the anxious was the protection, yeah. defense. But maybe that part of you relaxed a little bit and, and you know, let you know, like, this would be, this is how I'd rather <laughs> express myself. Yeah. You know, because that's the other thing is we're all exhausted from all of our running around and uh, uh, trying to custom tailor life and, you know, not drop the bowling ball in the gutter and keep the ducks in a row, et cetera. So many permutations of that sort of activity. It's exhausting. Yeah. And there's, you know, inside, like our, our minds don't want to do all that, actually. They'd rather be aligned with our creative purpose, aligned with compassion. Uh, some, an answer we get a lot in, in uh, my online courses where I teach this stuff and, and uh, my therapy sessions is defensive parts will want to go to the beach. Like people will hear that from their own nervous systems. Like, okay, if you didn't have to protect me in this way, what would you rather do? And, and people will just say, I'm getting the image of being at the beach. <laughs> this part of me really wants to just <laughs> chillax. Yeah, because I think that's like a, the biggest symbolism in our society for total relaxation mm -hmm. and just letting go of all that energy that the anxiousness sucks up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But again, I mean, returning to those three fundamental motivations of the human organism, yeah. the first being safety, the second one is to feel good. And our defense mechanisms, they feel necessary, but they don't feel good. Yeah. They, 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 you know, prioritize that safety principle, but they don't uh, over our need to feel good. But we'd rather feel good. Yeah. We'd rather, you know, uh, uh, find a healthier expression. Our, our own minds want to do that. And we can discover that again through, through the kinds of conversations that we're having with ourselves. It's powerful. Yeah. Ralph, uh, I could talk to you for another hour, <laughs> but it looks like we got people who want to come in next. All so right. um, let's just start to wrap up. Um, mm -hmm. Before I ask where everyone can find you and the websites mm -hmm. and all that yeah. link sharing, um, what would you say if the listeners can only take away one thing from you and from this conversation, just to kind of leave them with in summary from our discussion here? Just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep being honest and earnest and just keep looking at yourself. Keep digging deep. You know, just keep going. Keep practicing. Keep meditating. Keep doing all the things you're doing. And even if it ends up being uh, uh, you end up in a deceptive kind of cul-de-sac <laughs> uh, uh, with yourself of some sort or follow a wrong teacher or a wrong idea or, or something that doesn't end up too productive, you'll figure it out. But everything comes out in the wash if we just keep taking steps on this path. I truly believe there's no such thing as wasted effort if we're being sincere with ourselves. So wow. keep going. Powerful way to close a very powerful podcast episode. Um, Ralph, where can people find you to learn more? I know you do retreats, online courses, therapy, coaching. Books. Yeah. Books. Yeah. yeah we, going. Your book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so www.ralphdelarosa.com. Do people even say www anymore? Uh -huh. I don't know. I just did. <laughs> I'll put but, it all yeah. in the show notes. So, yeah. Ralphdelarosa.com is, is the hub for, for everything the online courses, the retreats, all of that. Uh, the book is called The Monkey is the Messenger. Uh, the, the Monkey is the Messenger.com. That's a thing, too, um, which is available in all formats and just anywhere that books are sold. So, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Yeah. Ralph, thanks again. Yeah, thanks for being so real, man. I appreciate it. Oh, likewise. Same to you.